0: Welcome to The Lubbers' Hole. You're listening to The Patrick O'Brien Podcast, where we review, book by book, the aubrey maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. And together, we are just about at the end of our reading of The Mauritius Command. Today we also have an interview with our special guest James Albright, a biologist and you might say a natural philosopher, and James is going to talk to us about the scientific world of Stephen Maturin, but that's all to come. So Mike, you and I have been wrestling a bit with The Mauritius Command, what it means and what kind of a novel it is, and maybe it's good to be getting towards the end of it so we can wrap it up.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, Ian, and i not only felt that way early on, and and then was a little bit more relieved about, okay, this is a little bit more about the Stephen we know and the Jack we know and everything else. But then, you know, last week we had all of these actions sort of out of Jack's hand, out of Jack's control, and, you know, so many losses, so many things going wrong uh, that I started thinking, well, where where is this thing going?
0: That's right. All of these reverses for the for the British campaign, the French are still there. And ships being lost, ships being burned, ships being captured, this doesn't sound like the traditional kind of A to B setback to victory flow that we might hope for from a sort of traditional heroic novel.
1: No, not a traditional heroic novel, and, and not even in O'Brien terms with, uh, okay, it's all going well, now we're going to have a setback, now nah, it's going to get better. This was pretty awful, kind of like all of Jack's fears about being so reliant on these other captains, all coming to naught all at once.
0: That's right. And Jack really hasn't had Stephen around very much. Stephen's played an important role in the campaign, but his role has been away from Jack. He hasn't been able to play so much the role of confidant and friend and backroom helper-outer that he had been prior to this.
1: Yeah, too very true.
0: So where are we now? The big attack at Port Southeast failed. Clonfort is wounded ships have been burned ships have been captured by the french jack has received word that this has happened and he's remarkably stoic there's something about jack here that he's he still seems to believe that despite the great odds despite the 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 good fortune that the french have had that maybe fortune's going to swing back his way quite soon one thing i did notice mike is that good news for jack thomas pullings is on the scene
1: yeah we're we're so thrilled to see you know when we saw bonden back killing back Pullings back. This is you know, this is encouraging, and as Jack is kind of uh, ready to go back into battle yet again, you know Pullings is back, and and Jack sends him off, knowing that Pullings will do the right thing, will do the smart thing. Yeah, he sends Pullings off to update Keating. Jack's ready to pull things back together. He's told Stephen, we've seen longer odds than this, and. He sends, as, as Pulling goes off to update Keating and then to go out and say, to tell any king's ship, any company's ships about the situation and warn them off so they don't have to deal with more Indiamen being taken in the meantime. And, and I love this, mm. you know, as Jack is talking to Pulling to be shouting from one ship to the other, uh, he says, and Mr. Pulling's, he added in his strong voice, I shall not object to you taking one of their frigates or even two. That will still leave plenty for me. And, you know, this is after all this disaster, <laughs> O'Brien writes, the joke was limp enough in all conscience, but the tone in which it was said, or rather roared, caused Pulling's distressed, tired face to spread in an answering grin. <laughs> Here we are.
0: Uh, and pulling the troops I together. I think I grinned as well as I read that line. Jack has got his fellow officer Pullings alongside him, and this starts to make you think that the corner could be turned and it's, it's all going to be okay in the end.
1: Yeah, we you know we get this sort of mounting now soft to louder drumbeat of Jack's confidence yeah. going up and 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 starting to rub off on others after so many of the others have have really been a disappointment for us.
0: That's right, and it's Stephen who has to go and ask him about this and elicit the statement from Jack that Jack genuinely thinks his luck has turned. Right, Jack says, um, we say in the Navy, the devil to pay and no pitch hot. And what we mean is that there's something hellfire difficult to be done, must be done, and nothing to do with it. It's a figure. And Stephen says, a very elegant figure too. <laughs> yeah. And was you, was you a weak, superficial cove, says Jack, and feeling low, you might say it described our situation at the moment, but you would be wrong.
1: Yeah, you would be wrong. Here is Stephen having just delivered <laughs> this devastating news and Jack telling him, no, no you think it's bad now, you would be wrong. There's
0: there's a thing here that Jack, all the way through this novel, has been willing to believe the best of people. Yeah. And maybe this is counterpoint to Stephen, who has had to learn to believe some bad things about people. Jack believes that everything's going to be okay. He gives Admiral Bertie the benefit of the doubt. He's given Clonford the benefit of the doubt. And he even gave Corbett the benefit of the doubt. And as Corbett comes back, Corbett's back on the scene. Corbett, the brutal, flogging, hard horse captain is back on the scene, rejoins at Saint-Denis with HMS Afrikaine, which is a plum frigate. He was given this frigate to rejoin the campaign as a reward for having brought back the news of the, uh, the earlier victories in the campaign. And I think Jack is willing to believe that Corbett could be a reformed character, that Corbett could have perhaps got past all of his badness and his demons and might be able to be a, an effective captain of a happy ship again
1: yeah and and you know jack's delighted to have this fabulous vessel now joining his squadron he's delighted in a way to have corbett back and you know he's, he says you know despite corbett's disciplinary things he's a he's a great seaman he's a great sailor But lo and behold, once again, we're disappointed here. Jack is cruelly disappointed here.
0: and He's disappointed because almost before we know it, certainly Jack stumbles upon this action taking place at first far away on the horizon, and then he comes into this action taking place. The two French ships have captured the African. African has been pounded almost into a wreck. Her masts are down. The crew are still firing their cannon, but it's very, very clear that the African is going to succumb to capture by these two French frigates. The Beaudisseur bears down the Astray, one of the two French frigates, refuses an engagement. And, and Jack says to Stephen, despite all of these setbacks, despite this plum frigate being pounded to a ruin in front of him, he says to Stephen, I know you'll think it illogical, f- firmly gripping the wooden frame because <laughs> touching wood is for good luck. right? I know you'll think it illogical and maybe even superstitious, but I have a feeling that the tide has turned. I don't mean to tempt fate, God forbid, but I believe that when the staunch and the otter join, we shall retake the Africaine. We might even snap up the Iphigenia. That's another ship that was captured by the French. And he's basing all of this, I think, as well, on his intuition about the conduct of the French captains, even the French Commodore Amelin, and even the French seamen. He says, I think she is shy. I think we may have hit her hard. Look at her, tossing her people over the side. The captain of the Astray don't trust her. But I will not go so far as that. The African will be
1: enough. Yeah. So he's got this this really great self-belief. It is self-belief and and that way that he has of taking on the picture, almost intuitively summing up the pros and the cons, strategizing. And as he's doing this, I think we've heard O'Brien talk about this in the past that you know Jack thinks he's having a private feeling, but in fact, it just can't help but radiate off him. And we read now that Jack's mood is infecting. Not just, you know, not just Stephen, but it's infecting the whole ship's crew, you know, and and they don't have a lot in some ways to be happy about. But O'Brien writes that at an early dinner and the grog cut by half, yet there was no grumbling. The Commodore's look of contained pleasure, his certainty, the indefinable change that had come over him had spread a feeling of total confidence throughout the ship. And, you know, it describes all their meager rations, all the reasons they wouldn't have yeah. to be feeling so good. But however, they they said they looked at Jack and they looked at the Frenchmen in their uneasy heap, to leeward, and they looked at the two ships coming closer every minute, their colleagues about to join them. And they talked in low, cheerful voices. There was a good deal of quiet laughter in the waist and on the forecastle. Here we have it. It's not the rashness of comfort. It's not the plotting of Pym. It's not the recklessness of Corbett with no crew behind him and and rushing to battle rather than waiting for Jack to come up with a bodicea so they could have actually taken the French. This is Jack. This is kind of Jack's time.
0: It is. And I love that he's struggled all the way through this book, all the way through this story to motivate the captains, maybe also to motivate himself in a way. Yeah. But now that he's close to an action where he can motivate a crew and that can have a direct bearing on the action, he's coming back to life. And instinctively, he knows that it's going to be okay because between him and his connection to the crew and his knowledge of the tactical situation, there's a possibility that it could all be okay. Yeah. And sure enough, the French ships abandon the Africaine and Jack takes her back. And the crew of the Africaine, I think this is now where we learn what was really going on, the mild disappointment, well, maybe disappointment you'd say for Jack, which is that Corbett hadn't really changed. The African was still a flogging ship. The crew of the African swam over and they were so happy to join Jack, so happy to fight under him. It's its a pretty grim story. Just objectively, the idea that you'll swim away from the wreck of your own ship to another ship to escape the captain. And, and we read as well that nobody's prepared to say for sure what happened to corbett except that he's dead and that he's gone yeah and o'brien writes about the sort of the the glassy-eyed don't know sir stare something bad happened to corbett some some revenge was taken and he's never ever going to know the story of it so it's it's not a happy situation but still he's now got this body of men aboard his own ship he's got this body of men the 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 africans who now kind of add to his status adding captains to his command really didn't help him. He found that a real struggle and he found it hard to motivate them. But he's got his crew of Baudetier who love him, and he's got his crew of the Africans who really want revenge on the French, and I guess indirectly, right. by, by transfers, they want revenge on Corbett as well.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's really exciting. It's really you know kind of what we expect in a way now of Jack, what we love about Jack, the way he gets people's enthusiasm, the way he builds a crew's loyalty – and and not by being too nice, not by certainly not by being too harsh. Um, and here they are; they're they're ready to go. But Jack does not give in. He doesn't, you know, make Corbett's mistake of going right on at them. Instead, the other ships come up, the Otter and the Sanche, and they head back to La Runion, where the idea is to refit out the Afrikaans, to get everybody in fighting condition. And to then head back out and finally serve it up, take Mauritius and f- complete his mission.
0: So Jack's getting his game on again, which is great. You know, we see him getting getting back his honor and getting back the prospect of a wholehearted victory that he can genuinely say is his. Yeah. And the other person who's getting his game on, I think Stevens had his game on as an intelligence agent all the way through. Right. But as a surgeon and as the person who plays a role in the superstitions and the affections of the crew, Stevens back in the game as well because he has this. Brain operation to conduct. He, he's helped by the african's surgeon, Mister Cotton. Even while the French are threatening to attack, and the sailor called Collie, right, has had a, this really terrible splinter injury, and and Stephen has to do this trepanning operation. He cuts back the scalp, basically folds this guy's face back over the front of the skull. And with together with Mr. Cotton, he opens up the skull, and this is low key, Mike. Low key, not a hundred percent, but I, th- I think low key. This is a minor Russell Crowe alert, because I have a feeling that this brain surgery episode is sort of combined and conflated in the movie Master and Commander right. with the brain surgery episode that we saw way back in uh, in Master and Commander itself.
1: Yeah, and and it's it's uh, it's kind of a, a gruesome thing in a little bit you know the way that at, at one point apparently he touches some part of the brain and you hear this unconscious sailor starting to speak as if he were right there
0: the sailors are really relishing viewing it Stephen is really relishing the fact that this is something within his power yeah that, that he can lead and, uh, and jack is really glad that Stephen, his talisman Stephen, his touchstone is is back doing what he always knows how to do. I I like the fact that we hear about it from the crew as well, observing. Yeah. So John Harris, folks Starboard Watch says, whenever they start talking foreign, you know they're at a stand because they're talking Latin to each other, of course, the two surgeons. Whenever they start talking foreign, you know they're at a stand. And that all is, as you might say, in a manner of speaking up. And Awkward Davis, the old member of the Sophie crew from way back at the beginning of Jack's career as a captain says, you ain't seen nothing, John Harris. Our doctor's only tipping it the civil to the one-legged cove. Just you wait till he starts dashing away with his boring iron. Right. And they're really relishing, <laughs> they're really relishing this role that Steven's playing in they're in in revealing this this guy's brain and hammering the 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 polished metal dome with the help of the armor back onto the guy's skull.
1: And he's set to rights. He's he's set to rights. You know, the crew loves watching this, especially the you know the folks, as you say, who have been with Jack for a long time. And Jack apparently mm-hmm you know, is absolutely delighted with Collie's recovery. And it's interesting, O'Brien tells us that beneath this valid reasoning, Jack's all the good reasons why it's great to have Kali back, lay a region that the kind observer might have called a sort of mysticism and that others, <laughs> perhaps more enlightened, would have described as brutish superstition. Jack would not have known it for the world, but he equated the Seaman's recovery With the success of the campaign, and as he looked at the disarray of the friendships, he thought that you know, (laughs) he's pretty much well on his way to resurrection. (laughs) If these things are running in tandem to one another,
0: yes, I like Stephen's description of them as Seaman's omen and the like that need not detain a rational mind. That's a really great turn of phrase. Yeah,
1: well done. Later, you know, the governor is like, "Why is Jack so?" optimistic about all this stuff. And and this is thrown in there. He realizes that all this stuff is joined in Jack's mind. These are all the good signs that everything is pointing for success for us here.
0: And all the way through, maybe from the very beginning, we were a bit unsure what had ever happened to Lucky Jack. The the hero of the stories of Master and Commander and Post-Captain and HMS Surprise seemed to be set right into the background. And Jack was trying to play this new role of the Commodore and I love your, your phrase, Mike, about this being a drumbeat. We hear a drumbeat in the last two or three chapters of Lucky Jack being restored to luck. And I think there's a, there's a lot of themes in this novel about luck and fortune and chance. And Jack's 100% sure that fortune is on his side. And that confidence itself, I think, is playing a role in Jack choosing his moments and choosing his battles from now on.
1: Very true. Very true. So we've we've got everybody headed back now. And, you know, the governor... Watches Jack's enthusiasm infect Keating so that everybody's running around, everybody's getting ready, everybody is convinced that they're going to go and they're going to win. And the governor's pointing out that, you know, we're like at a seven to one disadvantage here. Tell me what's going on. What, you know, (laughs) why are these guys so optimistic? And the governor even asked Stephen, is, you know, is there some intelligence that you have that you haven't shared with me? And he says, no, 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 no. And Stephen tells him, you know, I'm no strategy but I know Jack Aubrey well. I respect his judgment in naval matters, and I find his conviction, his military intuition, wholly persuasive. There may also be some illogical factors, he added, being perfectly aware that the reason for Jack's frequent hurried visits to the hospital and his immediate delight in Cully's recovery, such as seamen's omens and the like that need not detain a rational mind... (laughs) <laughs> and the an international mind. As you had mentioned a minute ago, and this is he's saying, yeah, there's a lot that makes sense here. And, and there's some stuff that we won't talk about, but that Stephen knows I mean, you just just, have to let
0: that
2: pass.
1: Yeah, you gotta let that pass. But he also knows that, and I think he's seen the crews long enough to know this counts for a lot. This counts for a lot.
0: So, Jack's connection to seamen in general and to the crew aboard the Bodicea is a big part of what's making him feel confident. So, we're, again, typical Patrick O'Brien. We're almost rushed into the next action. Right. The Bodicea is at sea. Uh, we've had the news that the Boulogne and the Minerve and the Iphigenia are heavily undergoing their repairs. They're not going to be ready for sea for a fortnight. And HMS Bombay is out there, and they almost run slap-bang into a running fight between the Bombay and these two French ships, the Venus and the Victor. Oh, and by the way, the action happens and and comes cl- ever closer while the crew aboard the Bodicea are in their Sunday best, finishing inspection. So it's a it's a domestic scene of Jack as as close as he often gets to the crew and to their lives and to how they're doing. This moment of being at divisions on a Sunday, and it's while all this is going on that the Bodicea finally heaves up short, close to the the action that's going on between the Bombay. And the Venus and the Victor.
1: Yeah, and I I love one that the news came from Maturin and Bonden that Maturin had been you yeah. know going off on a quick uh, mission to Mauritius to spread some propaganda that would turn the Irish mercenaries that were fighting there back to the English and away from the French, and and that Bonden get you know you have this great scene with Bonden and Maturin explaining it as as only the two of them can. And I love that, like you said, it's Sunday. We're all in our Sunday best. Yeah. You know, They dismiss the watch below, but everybody's like, no, 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 I'm not missing this for the world. I'm taking mm. and, and I'm not going to eat. I'm going to go take my meal. I'm going to stand by my guns because lucky Jack Aubrey, Goldilocks is going to clear for action soon, and I'm going to be here when it happens. Definitely.
0: So he's got this volunteer core of men aboard from the African. He even has to do a bit of a deal with the Africans who are really hoping to take places in the gun crews and he makes this speech where he says the Africans, they get first shot at boarding. They're all going to have axes and cutlasses and they're going to be the boarders. Meanwhile, every bodiceer that's a trained gunner is going to be at the gun that he knows how to serve. He says, that's justice. Yeah. So Jack's got a plan that's going to make use of both both bodies of crewmen, the former Africans and the bodiceers. And finally... Finally, Mike, we have an action that seems to fit into our idea of what a a classic Jack Aubrey ship action should be. He harnesses the motivation of the crew, especially the Africans who are bent on vengeance. He can tell from even the most faint distant signs of the Venus and the Victor what's actually going on there, especially aboard the Venus. The wind tactics and his gunnery skills and his knowledge of the situation all come into play. And to cut a long story short, the Africans get to board. The Bodiceas get to board as well. There's some hand-to-hand action, but with a relatively little loss, Aubrey wins the day.
1: Relatively little loss and relatively little damage to the ship so that he can, again, increase his squadron yeah. to take you know, what he perceives as his onward progress towards this inevitable victory. And he, you know, in classic honor style, asked to speak to the Commodore, Finds out that in fact the commodore has not survived the battle, and and yeah. Jack talks about that at dinner. You know, I love this conversation between Jack and Stephen about <laughs> uh, you know how how the commodore met his end. So they're having dinner, and Jack, Jack says to Stephen, "I was sorry about
0: Hamelin, however, though when you come to think of it, a man could hardly ask better." And so Jack's basically saying this was a this was a good and honorable death. And Stephen says, "Well." For my part, I, I could ask for very much better. A grape shot in the heart is not my idea of bliss, and I should do my utmost to avoid it. And yet, now he gets to poke fun at Jack, which Stephen often likes to do at meals, as we've come to know. Yet, Jack, your grief does not affect your appetite, I find. That's the eighth chop you've eaten. <laughs> so Stephen still very, very matter-of-fact and very detached, I think, about what's going on in the actions, even, even quite detached and matter-of-fact about his friend's responses except to say you're putting it away there jack right right and we're invited to think about the distinction between jack having his usual kind of downbeat mood rather depressed mood after a battle and i think maybe that's because he knows this isn't the end of a battle he knows this is the beginning of a of a turning in the campaign he talks about how the french ships are in poor shape his squadron's going to be in good shape in a few days time he says governor farco is going to be installed at port louis within a week of our landing and we're starting to get, as you say, Mike, this drumbeat louder and louder that says eventually something's gonna come out of this campaign for Jack Aubrey.
1: Yeah. You know, he's now in frantic action here. He's getting the ships already. They're plotting in great detail how they're gonna go take Mauritius. Keating is got that high pitched fervor that matches Jack's. But interestingly, in a foreshadowing, Keating happens to mention that somebody who was a prisoner on the Venus talked about something that they had heard about a large army coming from India. And Keating mm. said, you know, I hope we don't get caught up here. I've seen this happen before in the past where, you know, you've got everything. The city is ready to fall and somebody rides up and then takes credit for the victory as they go through the walls. But,
0: But, Mike, before we get into that, it's time to step away from the story for a second and spend time with this week's special guest, naturalist... James Albright.
1: James, thank you. Thanks for being on the podcast. We're so delighted to meet up with you on the Aubrey and Appreciation Society on Facebook. And, I wanted to ask you, how did you get introduced to the O'Brien books? When did you start reading them?
3: Well, uh, my first exposure to them was seeing them on a professor's bookshelf at one of the departmental get-togethers in grad school. He works on Drosophila genetics, but also apparently had a passion for Patrick O'Brien. And so I thought that was interesting. And My my curiosity was piqued, but it wasn't actually until not long after I saw um, Master and Commander the movie that I went, well, I have to go get the books now.
0: And James, I'm thinking in the movie, we already got a fairly big dose of Stephen Maturin as a natural philosopher. How important was that in grabbing your interest and drawing you in?
3: Oh, it was was great. I mean, I've always loved, you know, sailing and history and that sort of thing. But then to add that extra detail of, oh, wait, here we're going on this interlude in the Galapagos, which to anybody who is steeped in biology and evolutionary biology and natural history, it is one of the meccas of the world um, just because of connections with Darwin. So it really meant a lot. It really caught me.
0: I think it was filmed on location in the Galapagos as well, wasn't
2: it? Or uh,
3: Partially. Um, I think they weren't allowed to do too much filming on shore. I think they used parts of Mexico as stand-ins, ah. but they did film... I think, offshore, all that in the Galapagos. James, tell us a little
1: bit about your background as, if you will, a natural philosopher.
3: Well, I have a bachelor's degree in biological science and a master's in evolution and ecology uh, with a focus in systematics and phylogenetics. So that's a little jargony, but basically that's looking at the relationships between different plants and animals, reconstructing their history, their genealogy, and their evolutionary history and it also does tie into things like their naming and stuff that would be very familiar to uh to matron
1: so i've been on facebook i've seen a lot of your incredible pictures in nature you know what are some of the things that you've done in your natural philosophy
3: well i've been to you know europe along the mediterranean i've been to uh, central america australia um, um, and just always keep your eyes out, always be looking, observing. And it,
0: it seems to be a really primary sort of motivation for Stephen as well. He likes to be in, in the outdoors, in the countryside, ideally the dry countryside, not the wet kind.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Just just looking for stuff out seems to be a really deep-seated curiosity.
3: Yeah, it's, it's what um, yeah E.O. Wilson referred to this. E.O. Wilson's a, a Harvard uh, biologist, expert in, in ants, and a very famous guy, and he coined the term biophilia for this deep-rooted love of nature that he thought was just inherent to everybody. Well, it's it's certainly inherent to Stephen, isn't it? We talked about how that was a, a feature of
0: your viewing of the movie, and then it's clearly a feature of the character of Stephen. Is there is there any particular book or episode in the the Aubrey Maturin world that stands out for you, either just as, as a reader or as somebody with the same passion for for, for nature?
3: My personal favorite short arc, if I want to go back for a revisit, is always the mm-hmm. first three books that kind of form a nice little mini trilogy. Yeah. And there's a lot of wonderful you know, natural history in those HMS Surprise, where we go on the long voyage, the first long voyage, and we, we visit South America. There are some really iconic moments. But even the ones which have the least amount of biology still have little nuggets here and there. I know you guys are currently working through the Mauritius command. And of course that's that right. has the Rodriguez uh, solitaire and right. the, and the dodo.
0: Yeah. The bones of the solitaire in a cave somewhere. So we've encountered some animals live and in person as part of Stephen's story that have clearly stuck in everybody's memory. That's read the books. Uh, it, it's very hard to read an internet conversation about the books without encountering mentions of sloths or turtles. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> are those any of those that you've met in real life for yourself?
3: Uh, good question um uh, well I, actually one of the iconic animals is from uh, master and commander the hoopo um hoopo the, hoopoe. the, the hoopoe epops uh, that you know matron cries out when he sees it um and yes i've I've seen those in Spain it's a wonderful bird
1: it seems you know it seems like O'Brien's got a little bit of this uh affinity for nature as well
3: oh for sure yes uh you can't disguise that you can't make that up you're probably familiar with his first, you know, published book, which he, I think he published at the age of 15. You know, Caesar, the story of a panda leopard. It, obviously, a fictitious animal, but it it certainly shows how important nature was to him, even as you know, as a kid growing up. And in Master and Commander, when Stephen just wakes up and he's looks and he's watching the. The, the praying mantis behave uh it's that level of detail where you're just like looking at the little tiny things you know so yeah it, he's not he's not faking his love he, he definitely no. loved nature
0: yeah so what, what, whatever else he might have been faking and that that gets us into controversial <laughs> territory it seems it seems like the love for animals was pretty genuine
3: i'll take a pass on that one <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that often
0: gets called out as either so obviously a fake that it's ridiculous or such an ingenious fake that it's funny is the bear costume? What, what did you make of Flora the bear?
3: Oh yeah, that—that's just sheer. I think it's—it's it, it's O'Brien. He, he has a sense of humor. You see I, that right? Kind sure. of a—it's kind of absurd sense of humor at times, and I think he's just engaging that because the plausibility there uh, is is low. <laughs> he doesn't ever. <laughs> get too deep into romanticism or kind of magical realism or anything but he does dip between kind of the enlightenment and the romantic era in his his descriptions. I always like the description of Stephen going up to the Buddhist temple at Kumai and the dreamlike quality of it and just how implausible it is that you have this orangutan that it's making this long trek, but it's still so evocative. I mean, you don't you don't ever go, oh, well, this isn't this is totally stupid, unrealistic. Um, it it just has a, a sense of wonder to it, and there's silly stuff. Yeah, guys in bear costumes. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we we talked about stuff that's a bit silly. Let, let's talk about whether there's anything that that rings a little bit false. We got a, We had a great conversation with Milliard when we talked about bits of. Uh, Regency and Georgian social behavior that perhaps he could have got a little bit closer. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that you've encountered reading the books where you think, yeah, you could have got that a little bit more on point.
3: Um, just little bits. One of the ones that I noticed on a, my most recent read through was the, the platypus, they didn't know much about platypus at the time. And they certainly didn't know that the males had a spur with, with venom, which is very, very unusual in mammals. I don't think it was discovered. I looked it up uh, until 1895 it was described. And it's also kind of exaggerated the the impact. It was supposed to be very, very, very painful, but it shouldn't have been life-threatening. Yeah. But for the most part, he did a very good job of, of researching. He got a lot of details right. Yeah.
0: One of the things that we've noticed when you look at his his choice of language in general, he seems to be very good at picking out vocabulary that's absolutely in the period yes i've, I've never yet heard a modern scientist talk about a species as being nondescript but that seems to be a very period word that Stephen uses to talk about a, a new or an undiscovered species
3: yes correct we, we don't really use that today but it is technically correct um and is something that was used at the time quite a lot to describe you know an unknown undescribed species description being the formal process of saying, this is a new species, here are its characteristics, um, this is a type specimen that it's, that the name is tied to, and here's the name. Yeah, And that's description.
0: So should we, should we get into this naming thing? Because he, he takes seems to take great joy in the fact that the, the characters are able to talk back and forth, the scientifically educated characters are able to talk back and forth about naming, and he clearly knows something about systematics. And this great moment that we had just a book ago where... Stephen discovers the giant tortoise and names him after Jack Aubrey. Can tell us a bit about what's going on there with the naming convention and and how that works?
3: Sure thing. Um, A species will have a binomon, It'll have a genus and a species, both parts. And so Testudo is just a genus of tortoise. It wouldn't be what we would describe a giant tortoise as today. We would have split the genus. But at the time, they just kind of lumped them all together. And then naming it for his friend, it's very common. We often find species named for people. And, the, and usually we follow Latin or Greek, uh, usually Latin, adding an I or an I, or double I, so Ulbrii. Huh. Okay. And that's one thing actually we've moved away from is the kind of old school. You had these people who spent their entire career working on a very particular group like this one fam- subfamily of barnacles, and they would go around to different museums and look at the very fine morphology. But now we we've kind of we've we've gone away. We've used more molecular tools. We're looking at things mm. broader questions, not just you know being steeped in this one particular little group.
0: So while while we're with tortoises, I I think I remember in the in the mm-hmm. podcast episode expressing doubt that you might find a giant tortoise in the Indian ocean when I was pretty sure that, you know, the, the, the world believes that giant tortoises are in the Galapagos. And in fact, I think in the movie, this whole thing of finding a giant tortoise and naming it after Aubrey was, was taking place in the Galapagos and not on Nelson's Island in the Indian ocean. Am, am I wrong there? Am I adrift? Or is it possible that there are giants in, in plenty of other places besides the Galapagos?
3: Oh, it's actually quite common. Um, Uh, especially in the Indian Ocean, there are a number of small ones, including uh, Mauritius, there was a native giant tortoise there. Uh, Um, Most of them are extinct now. Um, But it seems that tortoises are really good at getting to very distant islands. And once they get there, there usually aren't very many competitors, and they can do quite well. And there's a phenomenon called gigantism, where you have the evolution of larger body size in some groups on islands you also tend to have island dwarfism where some larger animals will get end up evolving smaller but yeah so there's a number of giant tortoises throughout the world and testudo albriae is is perfectly plausible nice oh
1: great so unlike clomford's unicorn <laughs> <laughs>
3: so was
0: that was that at any point in history ever anybody who thought a unicorn was a real thing or is that just genuinely the Fantastical imagination of Clonford.
3: Um, well, well before this period, you had certainly the kind of late medieval, getting into early Renaissance. There was a fascination with these, yeah, you know, the early encyclopedists, and oh. a lot of the stuff they were putting in there was made up. <laughs> I mean, or based off of descriptions of third, fourth person accounts of travelers come back with, with big stories of people with their heads in the middle of their torsos and odd things like that. So at the time, you know, it was definitely in the, there be dragons here, nobody knows, but by the 18th century, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So definitely a fantasy on the part of Clomford.
1: Very cool. How typical would somebody like Stephen be back then? Do you think James?
3: Oh, well, I think Stephen's pretty unusual person for any time his particular combination of traits um, but I think if you're gonna put him at any point in time the point in time which we find him is it is his his natural home he's he's someone who is steeped in the enlightenment traditions but he's also kind of a romantic and they're kind of, and at this point you know the turn of the 19th century you were seeing, this kind of transition culturally is particular other set of attributes of this secretive espionage agent of catalan irish ancestry i i don't know how many of them there are <laughs>
0: <laughs> right That's not so many
3: <laughs> i was just uh, just looking through some stuff and, and and went oh well we've got william dampier uh who was a pirate and Royal Navy captain and explorer and travel writer uh, who circumnavigated the world three times uh, from the late 17th to early 18th centuries, and he was did a lot of early natural history uh, descriptions. So, I mean, you can have pirates who are um, explorers and and amateur naturalists. And that may, makes me wonder
0: as well about this habit almost this custom that Stephen has of picking up specimens and keeping them for people or sharing them with people like it, the, the world is one big biological swap meet.
3: Oh, and it was a wonderful present. The, uh, the gynandromorph that, um, butterfly specimen that Matron gave to, uh, Sir Joseph. That was, that was a wonderful moment.
0: So the gynandromorph that's a butterfly. That's half, half, it's half, half male, half female, right?
3: It is. So they're bilaterally symmetrical. So you've got, you could run a line down the the middle uh, from front to back and on one side it's male on the other side it's female
0: wow does that happen in other species or is it only butterflies that have got the got the morphology to do that
3: it happens in a few uh, species typically they're ones where where their sex is determined by sex chromosomes which isn't every animal right. and i believe it it's happened in happens in butterflies, fruit flies. Uh, I've seen crustaceans, birds. Uh, I've I've seen a few pictures of northern cardinals that were gynandromorphs. Wow.
2: Still
0: enough to get a naturalist excited these days just as Stephen and Blaine got excited about it back in the day. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So there's another connection that we spotted between Stephen's life as a natural philosopher and his life as an intelligent agent, which is sometimes uh, he... Pulls these puns out of the air that make a connection between the two. So he talks about cryptogams, and that's clearly intended to trip somebody up into thinking he might be talking about cryptograms, meaning coded coded messages from his other line of work. Is that right. are there any of those that we might have missed? Any other puns or plays on words that are bridging the two?
3: One fun example is um, one of uh, Albrey's malapropisms, yeah. where he confuses. The American Patriots' cry of no taxation without representation, with the motto, no reproduction without copulation, <laughs> which was a, a kind of biological law that was formulated as an argument against the theory of spontaneous generation that was still being debated at that time. Uh, so there's there's, there's a few. And I'm pretty sure Jack, Jack questions
0: it, and then Stephen says, no, I'm pretty sure the Americans at the time were very much in favor of copulation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, they would like to have what? more Americans. <laughs> and, and tell us, what 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 exactly is a cryptogamble? What, what, what is that?
3: Oh, okay. It, it's not a term that, that we would use today. Um, it was one of uh, Linnaeus's groupings. It referred to non-seed-bearing plants. Uh, the, the name literally means crypto, hidden. In gramma, I mean reproduction. So it would be basically lumping together this disparate grouping of things like ferns, uh, mosses, algae, even, I think he even puts fungi yeah. in this. And these are not closely related organisms. In our modern conception, we try to make sure, ensure that our taxonomy reflects the relationships. You can primitively not have seeds. One group evolved seeds, and now that's a group, but it doesn't make sense to say everything that didn't have seeds is all now can be put together.
0: Okay, because I guess we've, we've got the tools now to say something is genetically related. We can prove that from the molecular side.
3: Yeah, and we don't even need genetics to, to demonstrate that. Um, there was actually a big conflict back in the 1950s and 60s between um, the idea of modern phylogenetic classification, different schools there are more traditional taxonomy. For instance, that would say, well, birds are different than reptiles because they have wings and they fly. But birds are a member of reptiles because they're nested within it. So there's a you know yeah. and that caused some real knockdown, drag out fights back in the day. The more philosophical your field, the more it gets gets bad. <laughs> it gets angry. Wow. <laughs> And and a friend of mine once described
0: a philosopher as being somebody who'd rather be right than be happy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if your ambition is to be right, then that's going to be a big old fight.
1: Yeah. Anything else, James, as you've been thinking about the conversation and thinking back over the canon, anything else that comes to your mind relative to natural philosophy?
3: I think it would be important to stress that the 18th century going into the 19th century was really... This amazing era of of scientific explorations. You know, you had Bougainville, of course, Cook's multiple voyages with Sir Joseph Banks, who we've we've already mentioned before, and as well as numerous other botanists who got short shrift, lots of different expeditions. Before, in the earlier period, it was we want to go find things because we want to get rich on stuff and find new places. And yeah. now, now it was. We want to find things and discover things and learn new things. And that was still going on well into the 1800s. I mean, this was the period when we went from, you know, Humboldt leading up all the way to Darwin. And of course that Darwin's really the culmination of all this spirit because he completely changed the paradigm that they were operating. It wasn't just, let's just collect data and describe it. He showed how, it all fit together with uh, evolution. Uh, Matron w- would have been working without that idea, although there were rumblings of evolution at the time, Yeah, but they didn't have it. It wasn't nailed down. And I don't know whether or not Matron would have operated as a more of a special creationist or some form of evolutionist, but he wouldn't have had natural selection to be the key to understanding.
0: Cool. So we, we've talked about the the voyages and the trips of people like Banks and Humboldt and Darwin. Um, let's talk about the trips of James Albright. When quarantine finally ends and you're free to go further than the immediate neighborhood, what, where are you hoping to get to next, James?
3: Well, um, my wife's been teaching in Spain uh, the past few summers, and she was supposed to be there right now. Um, so she'll be going back and um, next year, hopefully, if you know, Europe reopens to Americans, and, and the case yeah, watch out. Yeah, for that. caseloads watch are that. down. Okay. Um, we'll see, but if so, then I'll definitely be trying to explore new parts of uh, of Spain and, and southern Europe that I haven't been to, and I'd love to get down to South America next, um, but we'll see. Uh, there's also the possibility of China. Um, my uh, my stepson is is in China right now. Wow! Oh, so. nice.
1: Boy, it sounds like some great trips. I know we're all looking forward to being able to travel again, and what a diverse set of nature you'd be able to see on those.
3: Oh, for sure. Yeah, right now I just kind of stick to the Big Bend, North Florida area, and, you know, just these surrounding counties.
1: <laughs> well, and and while you're there, you're working on protecting the environment, so as another Floridian, I thank you for that. You're
3: quite welcome. It's, I mean, everyone who works <laughs> at, at the Department of Environmental Protection, they're passionate to protect uh, the environment.
1: Well done, James. Thanks so much for spending time with us here. I know a lot of us are very much interested in these naturalist observations. So it's great to be spending some time with a real life naturalist and learning a little bit about, you know, what actually goes on here and seeing again how true to life O'Brien is. Thanks so much, James.
3: Oh, uh, it's been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you, guys, so much.
1: Thanks for joining us. Great
0: work. Thank
3: you. Thank you.
1: we've got Jack and Keating ready. They've put the boats together. They're sailing to take Mauritius, and we have the return of Thomas Pullings. And Tom Pullings is
0: bearing news. Now, I can't remember whether I spotted this the first time I read the book, but I just, just about spotted it this time on the reread on my circumnavigation. A couple of chapters ago, I remember that um, Jack had been commenting on getting a soaked and smudged letter from Sophie and remarking on the fact that she says in, in this one says Jack she says she is well surprisingly well underlined twice says it again in what I take to be the last letter I'm heartily glad of it of course but why surprisingly has she been ill yeah and we know, we we hear no more about it I don't think Stephen passes comment it just lit a little glimmer of a thought in me, like, oh, surprisingly, well, oh, I wonder what this could be all about. And Tom Pulling's, God bless him, is carrying the news. In fact, he's carrying the the London Gazette announcing the birth of a son to Sophia Aubrey. Uh, conceived, as it turns out, on the last night when Jack was uh, in, in port. And so they, they as a married couple, had been doing okay after all.
1: Well, at least on the last night, they did okay, right?
0: <laughs> they did okay. Absolutely. Just okay enough. Uh, Jack is absolutely bowled over. The, the thing that's going to rescue him from feeling down in the dumps about potentially being usurped or undercut by another senior commander is the fact that he has another child, that he has a son. And that tension that was at the beginning about him being a little bit unsure about having daughters and what he could do for them and what that meant for him, he's got a son and he's just the most sunny, the most optimistic the most happy man in on the planet at this point.
1: He he really is, and and lo and behold, he realizes that, you know, in in all this beaming and everybody, you know, sharing his joy, he realizes that oh, he's also got a letter from the admiral, and he opens that up, and and here it is. That foreshadowing is true. That the admiral's ordering him back to join the fleet at Rodriguez, and saying that they're going to attack, but Jack will now ride on the Admiral's ship, that the army won't be led by Keating, but by a General Abercrombie. And and Jack is as happy as can be, but Tom Pullings is now sick that he realized that he dashed so fast with this great news to tell Jack about his son, he didn't realize that if he had been just a little bit later, Jack would have gone on, they would have fought the Battle of Mauritius, Jack would have gotten all the glory, but because Tom was so anxious to catch up with him, he's now Jack has to turn back. He can't, he can't go forward.
0: Poor old Pullings. I feel really bad for Pullings. Yeah. He's, he's had very little to do to really push the action along. He's been there to be an occasional friend and familiar figure for, for Jack, and he's now worried that he's precipitated this, this business of Jack being being taken over. No such worries for Stephen. It turns out that Stephen, either for real or in pretense, knew all along that Sophie was pregnant. And she oh J- Jack says, Sophie's been brought to bed of her son. Aye, says Stephen, I dare say, poor thing. Must be a great relief to your mind. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> you know, we just count on Stephen to cut to the quick. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and again, he he really pins Jack down. He really analyses his 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 character and his motivation to a T. He says, Jack, not many years ago, you would have clapped your telescope to your blind eye, which is a reference to Nelson. Right. You would have clapped your telescope to your blind eye. You would have avoided those orders. You would have taken the Mauritius yourself before Mr. Bertie knew what you were at, which is a really fair point. It's not that many chapters of Patrick O'Brien literature ago, that that is exactly how young Aubrey would have gone. And we're seeing the story unfolding of Jack emerging into a mature character right and jack says well i am i am disappointed i must confess and when first i smoked the admiral's intentions i had a month's mind to steer you west but it would not do orders is orders bar one case in a million and this is not one of those cases the mauritius must fall in the next week or so whoever is in command whoever takes the glory And Stephen points out that Keating's not feeling so philosophical. Well, says Jack, Keating has not just heard that he has
1: a son. Ha, ha, ha. There's for you, Stephen. (laughs) Well, Keating's certainly not taking it well. And the crew's not taking it so well. They're upset that Jack's been denied the glory. And... Now that there's this huge invasion force being assembled, the crew realizes that their prize money will amount to what they call half a pint of small beer if that <laughs> they have to share it out with the Admiral and all of these other ships. So, you know, the Admiral, interestingly, Jack goes to call upon the Admiral and the Admiral calls him in. Uh, Jack, in deference to the Admiral, takes down his Commodore's pennant because he's no longer in charge. The Admiral is in charge. And the Admiral expects Jack to be furious. The Admiral thinks back that he's pulled this on people a number of times in his career as he went up the ladder, and they have been furious. Mm -hmm. But not Jack. Jack's cheerful. He's happy to share all his intelligence. He gives him the complete details on the plan of attack, and the Admiral knows Jack must be up to something. He doesn't know quite what to make of it, but he says to Jack on the way out, well, I, I noticed that you took down your you know, your Commodore's pendant. I, I think you should hoist that again as you go out.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and
0: it's funny. I, I'm not sure that Jack genuinely is up to something. I think a large part of it is just no. Jack as a bit more of a mature character thinking, I've got to sit on my hands here. I've got to bite my tongue. If I express dissatisfaction about how I've been ill-used, that's going to Come back to me, and I've been caught out like this before. So I want to give Jack some some kudos for being very grown up about this. Absolutely, but he's so grown up and so cool and so chill about the whole thing that the admiral's going, hmm, there's something going on in the background. I'm I'm going to invite this guy to hoist his pendant one more time.
1: Yeah, what's his game here? Well, it's um, fascinating to me that uh, Stephen kind of gets wind as to what's going on here too. So Stephen this book has been such a continual growth in Stephen's abilities and Stephen's confidence and our ability to see that Stephen spins a little story that he makes sure gets to the admiral's ears and and O'Brien writes that the story that Stephen has sent over is that General Aubrey the commodore's father and a member of parliament was probably playing a very deep game that he might be about to change sides, that he was secretly very well with the ministry, and that it was by no means impossible that he might shortly appear in an office connected with honors and patronage. (laughs) And if not on the board of admiralty itself. And so the admiral goes, ah, so maybe that's what's up here. I, I better handle Jack with care here. Great. And that's the thing that
0: I think had been missing from Jack and Stephen. Although they were on the same campaign, in the same patch of ocean, trying to achieve the same thing together, Stephen hadn't really been able to be close enough to Jack's motions to have an impact on his career. And he's done here exactly what he did at the end of Post-Captain, which is to steer Jack in the direction of a bit of advancement and a bit of a plum.
1: Yeah. And don't we love him for it? Oh, we do. We
0: do. And this is all, again, and I keep using this word grown up, and I think it really is grown up that Jack is disgruntled, but he's learned how to be okay with that. He's learned how to just bite his tongue a little and let Admiral Bertie correct his own behavior, and Jack gets a a bit of something back as a reward for having been a little bit less the impetuous, headstrong Jack Aubrey that he had been earlier on. And that he gets something back as well through the hands of Stephen, through his good friend. And that's just really nice and rewarding, a nice payoff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a contrast. You know, we remember back when Stephen was thinking about Clomford and Jack that, you know, Clomford, who had seemingly on the surface so many things to be happy for, was never satisfied, uh, you know, always doing all these outrageous, ostentatious things to kind of blow him up bigger than life, blow himself up bigger than life. And here's Jack, you know, as you say, much matured and doing exactly the opposite here. And Jack, who Stephen says, you know, outwardly might have much less, you know, these these cabbages and and the dry cow and the, you know, the, the, you know, living with his mother-in-law there in the you know, this is not Lord Comfort's style, but here with the news of a son here with his happiness with Sophie in the cabin, and you know, here with uh, it's okay. You guys go ahead. We're we're ready. Here's the plans. Carry on. I'm, I'll do whatever role you have for me.
0: And we're even rewarded for for Jack's very open minded, very grown up attitude to this whole thing. That actually the the campaign to retake the island carries on without bloodshed. The French capitulate. There's a little bit of theater with the French commander having to ask for honourable terms and they're allowed to march out with their weapons and stuff. But the final invasion is pretty much without bloodshed. And we can clearly see Stephen's hand here. Stephen prepared the island, prepared people's motivation, prepared the demotivation of the Irish forces under French command, for example, prepared people's suspicion of Bonaparte and his dealings with the Pope so that this was an intelligence-led victory and the French Capitulated after being given sufficiently honorable terms that they felt they could do so.
1: Yeah, and the admiral's uh, true admiration of Jack and his realization of Jack's strategy—they don't make the same mistake as they made last time. They don't let the generals overrule the "we got to strike while the iron's hot." You know, yeah. we can't let the French regroup the admiral overrides the generals and everybody else that that next morning to get them to go strike now. And that with the way Stephen has prepared the ground and the other things you talked about lead to this virtually bloodless uh, coup in Mauritius.
0: Yeah, and it's great. And it's it's a triumph for Stephen. But sadly, we can almost hear it coming. In previous novels, whenever Jack has scored a big naval victory, we've often heard it coming that his victory is going to be undercut. And Stephen has scored a big intelligence victory here, and that's going to be undercut. Because we go back to find Lord Clonfort gravely wounded in a hospital ashore in Mauritius. I don't know about being cared for, but certainly under the eye of Dr. Macadam. And we're going to slide, I think, in the direction of some really uncomfortable realizations and revelations as Stephen gets back in touch with Macadam and Clonfort. First of all, from some place, Stephen finds the idea that he ought to go and ask Macadam for some advice. And he asks Macadam about patients who lose all real concern with their life, who lose their appetite for the thing that they had up to that point loved and had a great affinity for. And I I can't really tell where does the point where Macadam gives a sincere answer and where does it get into a bit of cruelty and twisting the knife at Stephen. because Adam McAdam starts out saying that there are these people who lose their connection with their motivation and their kind of spiritual wellspring. He says that their spiritual death usually precedes their physical death by 10 years. And he entertains the hope that they can be saved by love or lust. And then he makes this offhand remark, which I think is now a deliberate taunt to Stephen. Absolutely. McAdam says, yeah, maybe he may tide himself over with opium for a while, which I think is a direct jab at Stephen and his laudanum use. And that brings the conversation to an end. Stephen goes straight away to say, Dr. McAdam, good day, and walks away. And I, I was really struck by this conversation that they both had about the void. McAdam says, people stare into the void. I I pick up here, I think, a bit of a reference to this idea of the, the abyss, the emptiness that is contemplated by humans when they're aware of just how frail and just how transitory their life is. Uh, This makes me think of um, the very philosophical and perhaps very Maturin-like movie director and actor Werner Herzog, who I've heard quoted in interviews a couple of times, giving this line from Nietzsche about, you stare into the abyss and the abyss stares back at you. And this is pretty grim stuff and it's pretty deep. And I think it reflects the fact that Stephen's not in a happy place. By the way, Steven's not in a happy place, but I suspect we might have some podcast audience overlap here. So forgive me while I play in this phrase, and I want to see if anybody picks it up. I would just like to say hello to Jason Isaacs. If that rings a bell for you, let us know on social media. But anyway, Steven's really in a place of darkness and misery. He's had Macadam channeling Werner Herzog, channeling Nietzsche, saying, you're staring into the abyss, you're staring into the void, my friend. And the other person who's staring into the abyss, of course, is Clonford.
1: Right, In in a very different way, in a yeah. very different way. Confort who gets word that Aubrey is on the way to see him, to give him his ship back, to kind of raise him back up again. Clonford can't deal with it. And Comfort, who had had that splinter right there by his artery, yeah. rips—literally kills himself with his fingers to yeah. rip this thing out, but rather than face Jack Aubrey, his who he sees as his rival, rather than be outdone because mm-hmm. Ra- Aubrey's been successful and he wasn't—and what a what a contrast again between mm-hmm. Clomford and Aubrey. As, as Aubrey graciously watches the Admiral steal his glory, and Clonford can't even stand to be congratulated by Aubrey, or once again graciously lifted back into command by Aubrey. Unbelievable. It's
0: really oh, very very striking. I was almost struck this time reading this through that Macadam is drunk and grieving over the death of Clonford. Stephen Maturin, who had already been feeling low and a bit mystified about his own lack of taste for life his own lack of joy is really laid low by the news of the death of clonfort not that i think he held any great esteem for clonfort but he was aware of the struggle that was going on in clonfort's character and i think he's laid really even lower still by the death of clonfort and I, I i would even say the same colour if not in the same depth as the death of Dylan HMS Surprise,
1: and a real echo back to Dylan's death, which Stephen hoped he yes. could prevent. James right. Dylan's
0: death also self-destructive and really you know, driven by rivalry and a thirst for honor. Right, and all of this thirsting, all of this rivalry, all of this desire for victory and glory. Stephen's finding that it's if it was ever worth having, it's really turned to ashes in his mouth. Now, he says, "Listen, Jack, I do not much care for the taste of this victory." nor any victory if it comes to that. Oh. I shall see you at dinner.
1: Uh, well, <sighs> the dinner that Stephen refers to is a ceremonial dinner. It's given a government house and Matron's rumors that he's planted about Aubrey have their desired effect. So mm. all these speeches go and drone on and on. and But in the end, the Admiral decides to give Aubrey, not one of the admiral's cousins or you know close relations, the honor of taking the dispatches back home to England, knowing that whoever brings the good news is likely to get well rewarded.
0: And what a generous thing that Aubrey, having soft peddled a bit on his feeling of um, of grievance at Admiral Bertie showing up, Jack Aubrey gets a payback. Not hundred percent. Not not a baronetcy. Not a peerage. But he gets the chance to take this plum news back to England. So a little extra bit of payoff for Jack. Maybe even a little bit of good feeling towards Admiral Bertie. He wasn't such a shallow, uh, manipulative guy as we might have first feared. I like the fact that everybody who went looking for outward, selfish, career-oriented victory and honour and glory and recognition has fallen slightly short in this novel. Right. <laughs> Clonfort fell a long way short. Pym didn't get it. Corbett didn't get it. Bertie didn't quite get it either because he, I think you pointed out, Mike, that in, in the real story of this Mauritius campaign, there were peerages for the people who came home. Nobody's been made a peer, but Jack has got back in charge of a ship. He's got the chance to take the Plum News home. He's got his good friend, Stephen, back within reach. And he has the chance to go back home and uh, set things right with his estate and his cabbages and his cow, and of course, with Sophie.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we um, struggled a little bit with the Mauritius Command. We're, we're glad to get this good ending. And and Ian, you were kind enough to reach out to our listeners to ask them to tell us kind of their reaction, to summarize the Mauritius Command In four words. That's right. can you share with us some of the answers that we got back?
0: Oh, I'd love to. So on social media, we said, give us your summary of the the Mauritius command in four words. We went out on Facebook. Uh, Mike Taylor on Facebook gave us a very straight, very factual definition. He said, dramatized, historically based campaign. So, okay, that's good. That's the foundation. Also on Facebook, we got from Jer Cashman, we got Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, <laughs> which sounds like a Stephen Matcher in utterance, but I'm not completely sure how it relates to the characterization in the book. Never mind. Rob Steele uh, came back to us on Twitter and said, herding cats ain't in it. Uh, Rob, I've, I think you spotted, and we're spotting as well, that perhaps that's more than four words, but never mind. Never mind. We, we then had quite very f- yeah very apt <laughs> we then had quite a few about Jack and I think that's fair this has been very largely a novel about Jack and his maturity and his growth um, Itan Basari on Facebook says pay day for Jack which is great it's it's really true and it's metaphorically and uh, symbolically true as well yes Leonard not also on Facebook Thank you Leonard you said a lesson in leadership which it absolutely is. It's been a study in Jack learning about leadership. Uh, There's going to be, perhaps by the time this episode airs, uh, the uh, Aubrey versus Hornblower lessons in leadership that's been put about on the internet will be done. So we're hoping that that's going to perhaps reflect back on Mauritius' command. Um, Some guy on Twitter called Mike (laughs) wrote, (laughs) Mike, you wrote, still lucky, Papa Jack. I like that. I like the reference to fatherhood as well. Um some other guy called Ian on Twitter wrote Luckier than Clonfort eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh and maybe the answer is luckier than Clonfort in reality, although that would have been too many words. And finally, um Jim Morash on Facebook. We got Clonfort Steals the Show, which is a pretty good title. And Jim posted two, and my, my personal favourite of all of them is uh, is the one that uh, Jim posted next. Aubrey Commands Maturin Conquers.
1: Ah, hear him, hear him. Hear him, glass of wine with you, sir. Absolutely.
0: So, Aubrey commands matching Conquers. Aubrey gets to respond to the Admiral. So, Mike, do you want to give us the Admiral's closing speech that dispatches Jack on his way home again?
1: Ah, it kind of, you know, harkens back to the end of Master Commander. He says, I hereby request and require Captain Aubrey to repair aboard the Bodicea as soon as he has finished his dinner there to receive my dispatches for the Lord's commissioners of the admiralty and to convey them to Whitehall with all the diligence in his power. And to this gentleman, raising his glass, I will append a toast. Let us all fill up to the brim, gunwells under, and drink to England, home and beauty, and may lucky Jack Aubrey reach him with fair winds and flowing sheets every mile of the way. Hear him.
0: That sounds like a call to action, Mike. Maybe, Mike, we might need to reach for Desolation Island. So what do you say to a bit more Patrick O'Brien?
1: Oh, with all my heart.
0: I was just thinking anybody said to me all day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, baby, you got great squiggles. <laughs>